Sponsorship of the KQED live audio stream comes from Xfinity Mobile, featuring customized wireless plans. Customers can choose unlimited, buy the gig, shared data, or a mix of both and switch it up anytime. Learn more at XfinityMobile.com. From KQED in San Francisco, this is the Writer's Block. I'm John Clinch, and I'm reading from my novel, Kings of the Earth. The story begins in 1990 with one of the Proctor brothers, Audie, waking up. Audie speaks. My brother Vernon went on ahead. I woke up and felt for him, but the bed was dry, and my brother Creed was already up. He had his overalls on, and he was telling me that I had to get up too, because it was after 4.30, and the cows wouldn't wait. The bed was cold, but it was dry. My brother Vernon was still in it, and he was cold like the bed was since he'd gone on. That left me here with Creed. It made me the oldest. Their neighbor, Preston Hatch, takes up the story. I wouldn't have been surprised if we'd lost the both of them at the same time. Vernon and Audie, I mean. That's how close they've been ever since they were boys. Vernon would lead the way, and Audie would follow right along behind. Not that they were two peas in a pod, not by any means. Vernon was the brains of the operation, and Audie had problems. Has problems. I was sitting in the kitchen with my coffee, and down the hill, Creed opened the barn door the way he always does, first thing. But instead of opening it and looking at the day and then going right back in, he kept coming. I've known those boys since they were boys. I've lived right here alongside their place since the 30s, and they've always run in the same track. Everything goes the same today as it went yesterday. That's how it is around a farm. A farm is the master of you and not the other way around. So when Creed opened the barn door and came out and kept on coming instead of going back in, I knew something wasn't right. I believe I stood up at the kitchen table and said so to Margaret. I said, Margaret, something isn't right. He was coming across the field toward our place, and I guessed by how he was coming that it would be a good idea to meet him halfway, if I could. I put my coffee cup down, and I went out onto the porch, and then I came back in to put my coat on, because it was cooler outdoors than I'd expected it to be, and I guessed I might be out there for a while. Creed had on that old wool coat of his that's torn up the back and covered all over with cow manure. It's either his coat or Vernon's. I can never remember. They all swap things around. It's the way they were brought up. Anyway, he was wearing the wool coat, That house of theirs doesn't have anything much in the way of insulation, so they probably have a better idea of the weather outdoors than we do. That's why I had to go back in for a coat of my own. Outdoors is no different from indoors to them, except outdoors there's more breeze and it smells better, even in the barnyard. I don't know if he slept in that coat or not, but he might have. That poor old boy looked like he was about to have a heart attack, and I was glad I'd gone out so he didn't have to keep coming up the hill. Vernon died in the night, he said. He was shaking a little, like he was about to have a fit. I'm no doctor, but that's how it seemed. A doctor might tell you something else, or or put it another way. My brother's awful cold, he said. So we went down. I got him turned back around, and we went down the hill and in through the barn instead of up on the porch and in by the front door. Not that I think they ever locked that front door. I don't guess those boys ever owned a lock other than the one on that room they closed off 30 years ago. Why would they? But we didn't go in by the front door anyhow. We cut straight through the barn. The cows were coming in all by themselves, and they were complaining the way they will, but they were going to have to wait. 
The house has just the one room that they use. Audie was on the floor, and Vernon was in the bed. I wouldn't say he was cold, but he wasn't much better than room temperature. Seemed to me he was stiffening up some. Creed didn't seem to mind my touching him, but I minded it enough for both of us. I've been around death enough that it ought not to bother me, but now that I'm getting nearer to it myself, it's different. It's different for an old man. Audie was the one who needed a hand. He was curled up in a ball in his long johns, and he was shaking all over, like he was freezing to death, moving all over every part of him the way his brother Creed had done outdoors, but worse. Audie will do that some anyhow, just as a regular thing, but this was worse than usual. I said his name, and he didn't say anything back. I got down on my hands and knees in front of him, and I looked at him hard, and I said his name louder. I made an effort to kind of bark it, the way Vernon used to do when he wanted to get his attention. I slapped the floor with the flat of my hand, and a cloud of dust rose up and I got a splinter, but never mind that. He heard me, and his eyes popped open wide, and he looked at me like he'd seen a ghost, or like I was the ghost, and he was looking straight through me at something else, maybe Vernon up there on the bed. Audie's pretty near blind, and one of his eyes is clouded over some, but I've never seen anything so blue. Audie resumes the story. When I came out on the front porch, they were turning. A little wind had come up, and they were all faced in the same direction, and they were turning. I couldn't see them all that clear, but I could hear every one separate. They all make a different sound, every one. I didn't make them that way on purpose, but that's how they turned out. They can't help it, and I couldn't help it either. They come out how they come out. Vernon says they're like children that way. They were turning in the little wind, and I listened to them turn, and I felt some better. The Proctor brothers have a sister named Donna. It was Margaret who thought to call the sister. Margaret Hatch, who'd watched from her kitchen window as her husband walked down the hill between the houses, and who'd kept watching when he didn't come back. Margaret who'd watched as the sun came up and the shadow of her house gathered itself and pushed down the hill to poke at the Proctor boy's barn, and who'd moved with her coffee out onto the screen porch to keep on watching, as the shadow withdrew a little, and the heat of the day began to rise, and the state trooper's patrol car came roaring up the dirt lane. She figured the boy's telephone must work or else they couldn't have called the troopers, but she didn't figure they would think to call Donna. She was right. She looked up the number and stood in the kitchen and dialed. She wished she had a cigarette, and the idea of it surprised her completely. She hadn't smoked since Harry Truman, but she thought that right now a cigarette might be just the thing to calm her nerves. The brother's house smelled like cow manure and dry rot and spoiled food, like tobacco and burnt rope and rat droppings, like old men and sickness and death. Del Graham was the captain, and he arrived first. He walked past the old man who sat rocking on the porch with his long white beard pooling in his lap and his hands knotted over his hairless skull. And he went through the open front door as into a mouthful of rotted teeth. The disarray and the stink, the order and the purposefulness gone to no use in the end. Creed was sitting at the table alongside the neighbor, Hatch, Preston Hatch, who'd made the call. The telephone was on the table between them, and they sat composed on either side of it like a formal double portrait. Titans of industry, 
awaiting a message from some distant outpost of commerce. The telephone was solid black, square and heavy, all business. The cord that connected it to the wall was wrapped in a kind of woven material that Graham didn't remember having seen for a long time. It looped easily and snake-like in spite of its age, and although it was frayed in places, it looked made to last. The telephone was the old-fashioned kind with a dial, rotary phones, they called them, and the numbers under the dial were either worn away from use or obscured by dirt. He figured the second. Either way, in the absence of the numbers, a person would need to count in order to make a phone call. Graham guessed that such a telephone probably didn't get much use, considering it was a conduit to a world that had no business here. The bed was in the corner beyond the table, and the man on it had no pulse. There was one empty chair at the table, and Graham came back and took it for himself. These two looked like individuals who could be trusted to know death when they laid their hands on it. He knew Creed by sight. He was the double of the old man on the porch except for a full head of hair, pushed up crazily in some places and flattened down in other places. He looked about used up. His cheeks were hollow beneath his beard and his mouth was caved in. His nose was spotted and bulbous, something grown underground and dug up and left to wither. His pale eyes, heavy-lidded and sunken, were vague and weary of witness. So what happened? Vernon's dead, my brother. I know, said Graham, I'm sorry. My brother Vernon. I know who he is, said Graham. Creed held a red man cap in his knobby hands, and he wrung it. He weren't dead last night when we went to sleep, but he's dead now. We'll have some fellows up here soon who'll take care of him. I live just down the west road a little, so I came straight from the house. Those other fellows will be right along. Creed reached behind him into a teetering pile of what looked like trash. He drew out a pouch of tobacco. You mind if I chew? It's your house, said Graham. Hatch touched Creed on the arm, but only briefly. You do what you like, he said. This ain't no crime scene, I guess, said Creed. He fiddled with the pouch. I ain't disturbing anything. Not so's I can tell, said Graham. He took off his flat-brimmed hat and hung it on his knee. He looked at Creed. Then with the palms of both hands he smoothed back the hair on each side of his head, as if he needed to. D'Alton answered the telephone in his businesslike way, and Margaret asked for his wife without identifying herself. It was no business of his who she was, and he didn't ask, and that suited her fine. Donna got on the line, and Margaret told her that there was a state trooper at her brother's place, told her everything she knew, that she had seen Creed come out as usual, and that she had seen Audie sitting on the porch, that she could see him there still, or at least his legs, kicking, but that no, she had not seen Vernon, not this morning, not yet. Now there were a couple more troopers and an ambulance, too. That last had come slow up the dirt lane with its lights off. Donna had better drop everything and come. The room was too small to fit everyone, although it had once been two rooms. The part near the door and the part by the bed were different colors, and there was a ragged four-inch line dividing them where a long time ago somebody had torn down a partition wall. The headboard was pushed up hard against another door that was sealed with a padlock. The hasp on it was oversized and rusted and weathered down, and it had probably seen use on a barn door at some time. The padlock was rusted, too, from prior seasons in the outdoors. If a person could find the key for it in this mess, he'd be eligible for some prize. It was surely rusted tight anyhow, a single solid piece of stubborn ruin. 
Two troopers and two emergency technicians had crowded around the bed for no reason anybody could tell anymore. One of the troopers went out to his car and came back in, handed the other one a jar of Vicks so he could rub a little under his nose against the stink. They usually reserved the Vicks for around bodies a good deal more decomposed than this one, but Vernon had the same effect in that department, whether he was alive or dead. A little wind came up, and the sheer lace curtain that hung over the front window pushed into the room upon it and fluttered some and died back. A creaking arose from outdoors. Donna pulled up and parked in the dirt lane since there were no places left in the yard. The technicians had Vernon strapped onto a stretcher already and covered over with a sheet, and everyone had had to clear out of the house to let them angle him through the door clean. Not that it mattered how rough they were. Graham held the door, and the two other troopers were up against their cars smoking, and Preston Hatch was leaning on the porch rail next to Creed, who chewed and spat into the dirt yard and gave the impression of thought. Preston as short and round as Creed was tall and thin. Preston as pink as Creed was white. The pair of them an apple set against a parsnip, one clean and ruddy and the other dirt-rimmed and root-threaded, arranged for a kind of still life. Creed spat and wiped his lip on his sleeve and spoke to his sister. Vernon died. Vernon, coming toward the porch. He ain't been so good lately, said Creed. I know, I know that. I think he had the same cancer killed her. Donna looked at Graham and saw him for the authority here and explained that Creed was talking about his mother, her mother. A long time in the ground. Where's Audie, she asked. Hatch looked around and noticed him gone for the first time and said, Audie? I don't know. Maybe he's in the barn. If he is, he's the only one of us that's got any sense. Audie takes up the story. They all came out together. They came out together alive and dead both. The humming of their talk and the grinding of their feet on the boards. The knocking of that plank against the door frame like Vernon wanted something. I thought I would go feed the turkeys, but the cows were calling from the barn, all mournful. I heard them through the barn wall. So instead of going out to the school bus where we keep the turkeys, I pried open the track door and slid on in among them. I got a pail and the milking stool, and I squatted down and took hold of the first teat that came to hand, and I worked it. I was shaking some, and a little of the milk caught me in the knee when it spurted out and it ran down my leg and reminded me how the bed was dry when I woke up. The bed was dry, and Vernon was dead in it, and I was the oldest, the oldest and left to follow him, but not all the way. Not yet. Donna. Graham stepped off the porch last. Put out those smokes and give these fellows a hand, why don't you? He was talking to the other troopers. It was his way of giving orders. Make yourself useful. Donna stood in the dirt watching the technician set the brakes on the stretcher and check it and open the rear door of the ambulance. She looked woeful and aghast, collapsed in upon herself. I'm sorry about your brother. I know. Thank you. He reached in his pocket and took out a white card and gave it to her along with his name. They all sleep in that same bed, you know, she said. Slept, I mean. Graham fitted his hat on his head and looked out over the yard, at the bare dirt and the sprays of tobacco juice soaking into it, at the whirligigs turning in the breeze, at the collapsed fence and the fields beyond it and the dirt lane running through. 
He tilted his hat back on his head by a few degrees, and he scratched at his forehead with two fingers, and he tilted it back down. This is a hard way to live, he said. I told myself I'd never come back, said Donna. When was that? Whenever. Always. I'd imagine going off somewhere, and wherever I'd got to, I'd never come back. Wherever turned out to be two-year college, then nursing school. Graham looked at her and thought she wouldn't mind if he said it. That makes you the black sheep. I guess it does. She didn't mind. It wasn't the first time. The technicians had the door open, and the front legs of the stretcher unlatched and sprung, and they were getting all set to slide it in, working slowly, as if it were the only job they would have to do all day. There was a time for urgency, and there was a time for this. You never got to look at your brother? No. I was wondering maybe you'd want to. Graham watched the men, what with the nursing school and all. Her right arm hung down straight along her side, and she reached behind her back with her left to hold it by the elbow. I just thought, Graham said. There's a thousand things, she said, that could have killed Vernon. I don't doubt it. God knows how he lived this long. She sighed and let go of her elbow and started down toward the ambulance, just to take a look. The neighbor, Preston Hatch, resumes the story. I took him to the hospital myself that one time. I had an old blue Nash 600 I'd picked up secondhand, and I had him laid out flat in the back of it. Creed was in Korea then, and the old man was long dead, and Audie was every bit as useless as he is now. This was the spring of 52, early spring. The snow just gone in most places, and in some other places not even. Vernon and Audie'd taken the spike-tooth harrow down to get it ready. It was an antique even back then. They were dragging it across the floor of the barn, and a tooth caught and broke off, and it flew, and it took Vernon straight through the calf. It came all the way through and half out the other side, the calf of his right leg. He never did walk right after that. This was early in the day, and I hadn't gone to work yet. I heard a howl from my upstairs window, and I went down and opened the kitchen door, and the howling hadn't quit, so I went out. It was a man, I knew that. It wasn't any animal I'd ever heard of. I got my coat, and I went out, and I went straight down the hill through the mud and what snow there was. I followed that howl. I didn't even go by the driveway. It didn't occur to me. I just went straight down. Of course it wasn't Vernon. Vernon had himself propped up on that harrow with his leg on the crossbar, and he had a piece of angle iron in his one hand. He began to beat on that spike in his leg, and Audie was howling, and he wouldn't let up. He beat on it, and I hollered at him not to, but he kept on, with Audie on his knees and shaking and howling all the while, six or seven good blows, and he drove that spike clear out the other side. And it just fell down in the dirt, and bounced once, and laid there. Audie kept shaking and howling, and he wouldn't stop, even though the spike was out, and Vernon was limping toward the stall. The leg of his pants was red, and there was blood on his boot and blood on the floor soaking into the dirt and into the straw wherever he stepped. I told him he had to let a doctor see it, but he said no. Vernon would never do anything you told him he had to do. That's been his way since he was a boy. He shook out a feed bag and tore a strip off it and got him some bailing twine, and he rolled up that pant leg and wrapped the rag around where the spike had gone through and tied it off. A black hole on both sides, pumping, that's going to bleed, I told him. That's going to keep bleeding, and you won't stop it like that. You ought to at least put it up in the air, I said. But there were chores to be done, and he shut his ears to me. 
He said, the sooner I get back to work, the sooner that idiot stops his blubbering. He was right about that. That rusted through spike was broken off clean and there was no repairing it. Vernon kicked it out into the yard with his good leg. Then he hoisted his brother to his feet and the two of them went to work side by side at the bench as if they had just one mind between them. Audie holding that piece of angle iron steady and Vernon hammering at it until they'd made themselves a pretty fair replacement for that rotten spike. Vernon's leg wasn't bleeding so much now, or at least not so much that he was leaking everywhere. When they were satisfied with the hammering, Vernon fetched down a brace and bit and put a couple of holes in the top of it by eye, and they mounted that old piece of angle iron on the harrow like it was made for the job. I'd say I'd never seen the like of it, but I had. You see a lot, you live alongside those boys your whole life. Anyway, that wasn't the time I took Vernon to the hospital. That came later on, when the blood poisoning set in and he about died from it. He'd bandaged a piece of salt pork over the hole to draw the infection, but it hadn't worked. Vernon rode in the back seat, Audie in the front. I drove fast, and we had the windows open, and Audie lost his hat. He didn't mind. I don't know that he even missed it. He leaned forward and watched the world go by a whole lot faster than he'd ever seen it go by from the seat of a tractor. And he looked so happy. He looked happy enough to sing a song, if he'd known the words to one. To subscribe to The Writer's Block and hear more stories, visit kqed.org slash writersblock. The Writer's Block is produced by KQED.